you'll join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we are continuing in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, and this morning we will be looking at verses 6 through 10. The title of our sermon is According to Works, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are patience, self-seeking, and good. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find our text on page 940. I was reading this week about a professor, and this professor had a large class of students who got into the habit of turning in their assignments late. At first, they recognized that as they turned in their assignments, if they were a day late or two days late, that the professor did not count it against them. He graded it as if It were turned in on its due date without any problems whatsoever. And so as the semester went on, the professor noticed that the the, uh, assignments as they were being turned in got later and later and later, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks later than the due date. Obviously, these students were presuming that the professor would always be gracious to them. And so after a while, he had been keeping track of when everything was turned in. He had a note of it all, so he could see who was the latest. And he grew impatient with the tardiness of their assignments, and so as they turned an assignment in, the entire class did so late and he marked 50% off on each and every one of them. He handed the test back, or the, the assignments back. The class grew enraged, and they got together, and they had a ringleader in the class who came to the professor, and he said, Sir, we would like to meet with you as your students. And as they all met together, they pled their case, and wouldn't you know it, their argument was that he was not fair. And so the professor, assuming this is what he would hear, pulled out his grade book and announced to each and every student when their assignments were turned in based on when they were due and told them he was now going to give them exactly what was fair. He went back through and he graded all of the assignments based on his tardy policy, his late policy for his assignments And I think never again did those students want to argue that something wasn't quite fair. And we have that conversation often with our children, don't we? When something happens in the home and they want to say that this isn't fair, we often respond, my dear child, you don't want what's fair. In the eyes of God, none of us truly wants What is fair? Because we often don't even recognize how gracious God is being to us day in and day out. And so as we get into our text this morning, we are now transitioning into the Apostle Paul talking about our works and what is fair in relationship to our works. 
And we're not talking about our jobs that we go to, to earn a paycheck, to provide for ourselves and for our family, but rather the works that are ours in our life of faith, in our striving for holiness, in doing what it is that God calls us to do as human beings, and particularly as Christians. The works that are measured against God's law. The works that are measured against God's Word. And so the question we have to think about as we get into our text this morning is, do you want what is fair? Paul is continuing in the argument we've been following since about the middle of chapter 1 in Romans, and his argument has been to show us our depravity, to show us who we are, to show us that we know God and that God has been revealed to all of mankind generally throughout nature, that God has left us with no excuse because the sin in our lives that manifests itself in numerous ways is enough to convict each and every one of us because we know God profoundly and yet we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. We worship the creature rather than the Creator. And time and time again, Paul has reminded us, as we've looked at the text, that we are without excuse. And then you'll recall last week, Paul got into the sin of hypocrisy. He dealt especially with the Jewish people and their hypocritical judgment of the Gentiles, who they most assuredly assumed Paul was writing about all through chapter 1, and yet They thought there was no sense in which it applied to them, so Paul turned to the Jews, he puts his hand over their mouth, and he says, now it is your turn, you hypocrites. Do you think you are any better off than the Gentiles because you are Jews? Think again. And so as this, this morning, as we, we think about all that we have seen thus far, all the ways that God's Word has pressed so hard on each and every one of us, revealing to us our own depravity, revealing to us the darkness of our own hearts, we now begin to turn and see the results. If all that Paul has said is true, that this is who we are, that this is what we have done and are doing. And we all know that we have. And what can we expect? Where does this road lead? Do the things we say, the things we think, the things we do, do our works really matter? And if they do, do we want the result to be that God's judgment toward us is fair. So let's read Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, texts like this are very important for us because they do highlight the fact that our works really matter. I think there's this tendency amongst Christians sometimes to assume that God's grace is really more about us being able to sit back and relax in the Christian life when it comes to our works because God is going to forgive us. He's going to love us and accept us in the end anyway. We presume upon God's grace. But there are numerous places throughout the Bible, and particularly we see it in the New Testament and, then, and especially in the letters of Paul, that deal with this very question of a Christian's works and why they actually matter. And this is one of the stronger statements that highlights the importance of a Christian's work in light of our depravity within the context of Paul stripping us down making us naked before a mirror and saying, this is who you are apart from Christ. This is who you are without Christ. This is the truth of who you are, following after your flesh, living in your flesh, living upon your own self-righteousness, following after your idols, worshiping yourself. This is what all of that looks like. And so what is the result? Well, he tells us there in verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. Now, both Jesus and Paul really emphasize this reality, namely that our rewards, our everlasting eternal rewards in heaven will be distributed according to our works in this earthly life. And judgment, Paul has made clear previously, is not a result of one's Jewishness. It's not a result of one's Gentile status. It is not as a result of your intellect or your family or your race or your nationality or any such thing because Paul reminds us, and we will see this again next week in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. In the end, God's judgment will be based on deeds, on works, and more specifically, on good works versus bad works. And I know, because you're all good Reformed theologians, you're really uncomfortable with me saying that. But notice in verse 6, He leaves no one out. He will render to each one. It is universal, it is personal, it is an individual judgment, it is not national, it is not familial, and works are involved. This is actually a brilliant thing that Paul has done here, because if you remember the context, he's dealing most specifically with the Jews, even though this most certainly applies to all of us. But as he's dealing with the Jews here, he is simply quoting both Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. They say the same thing as verse 6. It's a direct quotation from the very Scriptures that the Jewish people prided themselves on knowing and upholding. And so Paul is saying to them, your Jewishness that you're depending on, it does not save you. And he's telling us, your Americanness, your Westernness does not save you. Your dad's being an elder or a deacon does not save you. 
you as an individual, you will be judged before God and it will be on the basis of who you are as an individual and what you have and have not done. Now, this is a very strong statement. and We have some work to do to sort out what this means in light of all of our theological categories that we know and understand about justification. This may seem to run up against everything else that Paul says. So let's get into this with three important points from our text this morning. And the first one is, and put on your seatbelts, don't haul me off just yet, I'll explain it. Paul shows us that there are two possible ways that a person can be saved. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, Pastor Nick. This is the same Apostle Paul who emphatically asserts that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. You have shown us over and over again that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. How in the world can you ever say that there are two ways of salvation and not just one? And I say it because the Bible teaches it. Now let me explain. Verse 6 is the assertion of this passage. He will render to each one according to his works. And then verses 7 through 11 are the exposition, the explanation of verse 6. Really, this here is one of the world's shortest sermons. But there's a lot of stuff that Paul packs in here as he often does. So look at what he writes in verse 7. He says, "...to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life." Now, there's at least two things here. One I'll deal with now and one a little bit later. The question we have to ask the text is, is Paul saying that a person could be saved by doing good works and seeking for glory and honor and immortality in this life? And the answer to that question has to be yes. This is the plain reading of the text. This is what Paul is saying. Now, many scholars want to wrestle in the meaning of that text, but I think it's easier to just deal with it as it is written and recognize that there is something that Paul is trying to do here. Now, remember the context and don't isolate it. This will just be much easier for us to track if we think of the big picture. Don't forget, don't push out of your mind the fact that the Jews were banking on their Jewishness and their, and their law-keeping to inherit eternal life. So what is Paul saying to them? He's coming in and he's sort of throwing them a bone and he's saying, you know what, here's the truth. You guys are right. You can be saved by your good works. If you keep the whole law you will be saved. That's the essential claim that Paul is making here. And that's true, isn't it? Isn't that at the heart of the gospel? Isn't this at the heart of how the entire Bible is framed? Think back to the garden of, uh, uh, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God gave them a very specific command. And by virtue of that command, they were bound by God in what we call a covenant of works. 
Their covenant was a covenant that demanded something of them. They were, they were bound to uphold and fulfill the works that were given to them by God. And if they obediently and successfully fulfilled those works, God would allow them to partake of the tree of life and they would live everlastingly with God in perfect communion, free from death, sin, and shame. But we all know the story. They failed to uphold their end of the covenant obligations, and as a result, Adam was the representative head of all of mankind. All of humanity fell, all of creation fell, and all of creation still to this day suffers from the effects of the fall. But here's the thing. That covenant, that covenant of works was never annulled. The covenant of works never went away. It still stands. And here's the, here's the basic structure of that covenant, that God has shown us by His law what He requires of mankind. More specifically, in the Ten Commandments, in the moral law of God, God has said, this is what I require of you. And if you are to fulfill the law, you must fulfill the law perfectly. The demand is perfect obedience. One single sin in breaking and violating the moral law of God is, the Bible tells us, as to breaking all of the law. And so all of us are born under and into this covenant, this covenant of works, this covenant that says, do this and you shall live. If you do not do this, there will be judgment. And so it is, the requirement is, as Jesus said, be perfect for I am perfect. That's the standard. And so you see, by virtue of this covenant of works, this all stands true. He will render judgment according to your works and to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But again, think about that. And more than that, you know, you know very well the condition of the human heart, and Paul has just laid all of this out beginning in chapter 1. So what do we say to all of this? If we, if we read verse 7, what is our initial reaction as we think about that for ourselves? Hopefully it is, I cannot do that. And as I tell you, what is the covenant of works that you are born into? that you would say, I cannot fulfill my obligations of that covenant. I have failed, and indeed, according to the psalmist, I failed from the moment of my conception because my nature itself is sinful. And knowing that that is what you are thinking, Paul has you right where he wants you to say, you are absolutely right. You see, Paul is doing something here that, that Jesus often did with the Pharisees and with the self-righteous Jews that would try to trick him. Remember, they would ask him, they would come to him, various questions, but it always sounded something like this, what must I do to be saved? Now, this wasn't a genuine question. They were trying to trap him in some way. And Jesus, discerning their motives, knowing that they were trying to trick him, he would say, well, what does the law say? And they would tell him a few of the commandments, and he would ask them, are you doing that? 
And they would all sort of be indignant at the question in the first place and sort of have this response of, well, of course I'm doing those things. And so I get the impression that Jesus sort of said, okay, well, then that's fine. He was totally trolling these guys. He was a master. And then he would sort of say, I imagine a little bit nonchalantly, he would say something like, I know you know this because obviously you're already doing these things. But by the way, you need to not just do those things externally, but you need to do them perfectly. And that means that they're all being done in your heart with the right motives and the right intentions. And if that if something is actually an idol in your life, you have to be rid of that. And then afterwards, we can talk about eternal life. So if all of that is in order, you're good to go. And he just absolutely shut them down because they knew that that standard was impossible. They knew they had no ability to live up to the standard of perfection that was demanded of them. Just like you and I hearing this right now, know that we do not, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality on our own that we might inherit eternal life. But Paul, like Jesus, is saying, if you can perfectly fulfill the obligations of the covenant of works, if you can live a perfect law-fulfilling life, then you can be saved. And we know that's God's standard. And if you can do that, you can be saved. So yes, technically, there are two possible ways that a person can be saved, but the first one is that you must be perfect without any sin ever. 100% perfection, and let me tell you, that ain't you, and it ain't me either. And Paul is saying, in all reality, you could obtain eternal life through good works, but you can't do it because you are sinful in every way. And so you would if you could, but you can't, so you won't. So what is the result? If we are unable to fulfill God's standard, what is the outcome? Well, Paul shows us in our second point this morning that the judgment of God awaits all who deny the truth. Look again at verses 8 and 9. He writes, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, by this point in Romans, we are seeing that Paul is really emphasizing the wrath and judgment of God, and for good reason. He continues to show us that who we are in our natural state as deniers of truth It warrants the very thing that comes when we continually and willfully suppress the truth, when we willfully and continually worship the creature rather than the Creator, and when we approve and applaud others who do the same. Now, Paul shows us in verses 8 and 9 that the works of natural man in rebellion against God are the very works by which we will be judged. Again, a very clear indication that our works matter. Now, first thing in verse 8 says this person is self-seeking. 
In other words, he's very concerned about pleasing himself, satisfying himself, allowing uh, and aligning all that he can in life to suit him and his desires, even if that means taking advantage of others and using others. This is very much the same as what Paul writes in 2 Timothy, that he says, in the last days, men will be lovers of self. And so much of our sin is easily summarized by this very same thing, right? In all fairness, it's quite accurate to say that this is, is generally the root of all of our sin, especially that the sin that Paul has been laying out for us since chapter 1. We rebel against God, we suppress the truth, and we chase after idols because we have convinced ourselves that we are smarter and wiser than God when it comes to us living our own lives. We have told God to not tread on us because we have it all figured out in our finite wisdom. Now, of course, the result of one being self-seeking is that, as Paul says, they do not obey the truth. The self-seeking man will reject and resist what the Lord has commanded. And so, when God reveals what is true, the self-seeker says, I'm not interested. This is man quarreling with God. This is man taking a prideful posture toward God and saying and thinking he knows what is best for himself. And he says, my truth is different than your truth. I will go my own way. Thank you very much. Isn't this so much the idea behind the attitude that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth? It's so common today to hear people talk about their truth, but what is that? It's a self-seeking attitude. It says, it doesn't matter what God says because I don't like it. I will do what I want to do the way I like it, and to me, that is what I will call true, whether it is true or not. Now listen, I spend a lot of time reading books and journals by postmodern scholars, and it never ceases to amaze me that their arguments so strongly, so emphatically emphasize that there is no way in any way whatsoever that there is an absolute objective truth because truth is subjective and personal. It seems to me that they have lost the fundamental narrative they've tried to establish by arguing their case in absolute terms. The only thing they are absolutely certain of that is true is that there is no absolute truth. But they cannot do anything else, right? Because the entire universe is fixed on the reality of absolute truth. Everything about our existence and how we talk and how we interact is fixed on absolute truth. And so the self-seeker can claim to have their own truth, but they're simply admitting out loud that they would rather believe a lie. And so what is the result of that? Well, Paul continues in his line of reasoning. The self-seeker disobeys the truth, and as a result, he obeys unrighteousness. Rebellion gives birth to disobedience, and the lifestyle that results is completely unrighteous behavior. You know your own life apart from Christ. Indeed, you know your own life in Christ. 
when you're in rebellion, when you're going your own way for a time, when you see in your own behavior and when your mind is not set on the things of God and the glories of Christ, but on yourself and your flesh and your own desires, and you see what the results are. We all know that experience. The results are not things that result in producing life and producing goodness and beauty and the advance of the truth. No, the results bring death and condemnation and struggle and strife. They are deeds that bring about evil. They're, they're ugly. They're vile. They're filled with lies and deceits. And they try to hide in the darkness. You and I both know how sin works. We lie and we hide and we cover up and we conceal. And the more we do that, the more sin continues to pile on top of that sin because we continue to try and hide things and try and conceal things. And in order to cover the last sin, we need to sin more. And as that's going on, it makes us irritable. It's difficult to get along with us because we get defensive and we get withdrawn because we don't want to be found out. And so our lives begin to be filled with hostility in our relationships and more and more self-justification for our actions. And it results eventually in losing friends and family and money and respect and on and on and on because the only result of being a self-seeker who disobeys the truth is that we obey unrighteousness. We have no other option because... We will love the one and hate the other. There is no middle of the road. You will either obey God or obey your flesh. And so what comes of that? Well, Paul says there will be wrath and fury and there will be tribulation and distress. The road to hell is a spirit of antagonism towards God, toward the lordship of Jesus Christ. The road to hell is filled with broken relationships and lies upon lies upon lies. It is filled with guilt. It is filled with shame. It is filled with darkness and evil deeds. The road to hell is filled with things that ought not to be spoken of in public because as we've seen, the further we go in our seeking of self, the more the Lord lifts His hand of common grace and allows us to seek after our flesh which is the judgment of God on full display. And so as we seek in this life to choose our own adventure, we do so to our own peril. God will be angry. And so what is the result? Notice what Paul says. It's for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, there will be everlasting torment. God judges and He judges according to deeds just as He judges according to guilt. And He judges according to truth. And He judges according to knowledge. And a person's works are the inflexible, infallible indicator of their life. And unrighteousness, no matter how religious it gets, like it was with the Jews, will ultimately produce only evil deeds. The road to hell is filled with all of these things we've mentioned, but it's also filled with a lot of religious people, and that will be a surprise. 
because God will judge all mankind equally because His standard is the same for every one of us. There will be an absolute equity in ultimate judgment. So what hope is there for you and for me? Lastly, this morning, we see from the Apostle Paul that the glory, honor, and peace of God await all who walk in obedience to Him. Paul finishes verse 10, writing that there is glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And as we, as we think about this, I want, I want you to keep in mind verse 7 again, because it's not entirely hypothetical in the sense that there is nothing for us to learn other than we cannot do it. Remember, he wrote, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, you'll recall I began with the assertion that our works matter, and they do. If all we do will be judged by God and our, our rewards in heaven are consistent with our works on earth, we have to say that our works matter. And here Paul is telling us that there is something good and right about seeking for glory and honor and immortality because to do so gives eternal life. There is glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, both Jew and Gentile. So brothers and sisters, I think part of the instruction Paul is giving us here is that we should seek and want to pursue and crave and love glory and honor, and peace, and immortality more than we desire the things of this earth. We don't want to be lazy, apathetic, sluggish Christians. We want our hearts to be full of a sense of the preciousness of God, and we want that to fuel our desire to know Him, and to walk with Him, and to be obedient to Him instead of denying Him, and disobeying Him, and suppressing the truth. So here's the reality of what happens in our lives. Here's how all of this plays out. We are all born into this covenant of works. Do this and you shall live. Don't do this and you will be judged. We know as we look at God's law, we cannot fulfill our covenant obligations. We will not fulfill our covenant obligations. The problem for us is that God's standard does not change. God will not grade your late assignment in the same way that He would if it was turned in early or on time. God's standard is unbending. It is unflinching. The law must be fulfilled to perfection. But even the most lost person you know will tell you, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And they're absolutely right. So what hope does anyone have? To whom can we turn? Well, I remind you of the promise, not of the covenant of works, but of the covenant of grace, of the new covenant. That covenant that God announced as He was passing out judgment in the garden, after Adam and Eve fell and God was cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent He turned to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and he said that the seed of woman, the seed of woman would be one that the serpent would bruise his heel, but that seed would crush his head. It was the first announcement of the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ would come into this world and He and He alone would fulfill the covenant of works that you and I could not fulfill but were required to fulfill. In all of its entirety, the entire law of God that Jesus Christ would fulfill, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, to perfection without one iota of sin. And in so doing, God would establish a new covenant, a covenant between God and all who rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. No longer obeying unrighteousness, but rather standing upon the righteousness of Christ alone. No longer turning to ourselves, depending on our flesh, relying on our own works, because our own works, no matter how good they may seem, will never measure up to God's perfect standard. And so God has moved that all who are in Christ transition from a covenant of works to a covenant of grace. That by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, that we can have everlasting life. That we can be a people who do exactly as Paul has said, that we would seek glory and honor and peace. That we would do good works. That we, by patience and well-doing, would seek for glory and immortality, that we would find eternal life. And so it is because and only because Christ has come into this world and fulfilled all of our obligations in the covenant of works, living a perfect life, dying the death that we deserve because we have failed to uphold God's standard, being raised from the dead on the third day, that sin and death would be conquered. It is only by faith in Him, trusting in Him, trusting that His work stands in the place of our work, that we can rest in His righteousness alone, that we need not fulfill anything to perfection because we cannot, but rather we can trust that Christ has done it on our behalf. And so when that happens... Our perspective changes because our hearts have changed. And so we can ask, do, do then, if I am in Christ, do my works then matter? Yes, they matter. They matter now more than they ever did before. Do my works save me? No, they never did and they never will. Because the standard for works saving you are that they are fulfilled to perfection. And so if they don't save me, then why do I do good works? It sounds kind of like having a job that I hate, that seems mundane and meaningless. I'd rather be at the beach. Why do them if they don't matter? But they do matter. Because your works, your striving for holiness, your striving for godliness, your upholding of what God has called you to be and do, they show what kind of person you truly are. Your works are the visible representation of the spiritual reality of your heart. And if you're walking in obedience to God, the glory and honor and peace of God awaits you. 
It has been purchased for you in the blood of Christ, the gift of everlasting life that you did not and cannot earn, but that is yours because of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished on your behalf is worth living for. It is worth working for. And so now you as a Christian, as you look to God's law, you have new eyes to see. You have new hearts to understand. And so you don't look to God's law in rebellion and self-seeking and truth-denying as a slave to unrighteousness, but you look instead as a lover of Christ and a doer of the Word for the glory of God because you know that your good works in obedience to God not only bring glory to Him, but bring joy and peace and hope into your own life and the lives of those you interact with from day to day. Those who trust in Christ love the law of God. And our great desire is to live and to strive to make known the beauty of the law of God, not only in word, but in our very own deeds, because we know the law of God has been given that we might have truly fulfilling lives, that God's law, we understand, is for our good. It's for our benefit. And as it is worked out in our lives, we know true joy and peace of Christ. God's law is far more than just a mechanism that God uses to bring us to see our need for the gospel, which He absolutely does. It is also that which God gives so that we as Christians, we who have been justified by faith in Christ alone, can stand and say, now then, how shall I live? And God says, live in this way. And so let us not shun this great truth, this great reality that God has commanded of us, that we as His people would live in obedience. Brothers and sisters, will we commit ourselves to lives of greater faithfulness in fulfilling our calling to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not to earn anything. It's already been purchased. It's already been given. But to show in our lives that Christ and not ourselves is our Savior. Friends, if you do not know Christ, would you look to Christ that you might live? Would you come to Him by faith today that you might know the joy of salvation, that you might embrace glory and honor and peace forevermore? He's calling on you, and He will receive you with open arms.